Welcome to episode 5 of Chasing Majors, a podcast where Tiger Woods' former caddy Steve Williams takes you behind the scenes of the 13 major championships they won together between 1999 and 2008. In this episode, we'll take you back to the 2001 Masters, where Tiger completed one of the most incredible achievements in all of sport by winning four majors in a row. Tiger had won the US Open, the British Open and the PGA Championship in the year 2000 and then he triumphed at the 2001 Masters the following April. In doing so, he became the first ever golfer to hold all four of golf's major championship trophies at the same time. But because he didn't win all four majors in the same year, the achievement was coined the Tiger Slam instead of a Grand Slam. But either way you slice it, the likelihood is no golfer will ever pull it off again. Chasing Majors is proudly brought to you by Bluebet, a true blue Aussie betting company. So Steve, welcome to episode 5 of Chasing Majors, and we left the last episode with Tiger winning the 2000 PGA Championship to win three majors that year, but he actually won three more official tournaments after the PGA to close out the year 2000, and the last of those wins was the Johnny Walker Classic in Thailand, where of course Tiger's mother Kaltita comes from, so it's a special place for Tiger, and, and every time he went back to Thailand it was pandemonium everywhere he went. What are your memories of not only the, the 2000 Johnny Walker Classic where Tiger beat Jeff Ogilvy by three shots, but also caddying for Tiger in a country where he was basically bigger than the Beatles? Well, actually, the, the, the fondest, or no, I wouldn't say it's the fondest memory, but the biggest memory I've got of that event actually is that from the hotel where we were staying that week, we would take a helicopter to the golf course every week from the top of the hotel, and the pilot of the helicopter was an old guy from World War II who spoke zero English and he was absolutely amazing how he navigated to get off the top of his roof but one day he just he just the thing plummeted out of the air I thought we all thought that was it we we're all gone he just he said oh I'm sorry about that boys just took my eye off the job <laughs> uh, I'll never forget that uh yeah uh, just the way he navigated through the downtown Bangkok to the top of this hotel so that was you know Tiger played spectacular golf at that event and of course having won three major championships that year, then he's playing in Thailand where his mother is from. And obviously Tiger has a great affinity with Thailand and, and so forth. So it was, an, yeah, it was an incredible week. Um, but that just capped off an, an amazing year. And one of the things that probably has never had much airplay or not being spoken about, but um, when Tiger Woods played overseas and obviously was getting an appearance fee to do so, he never, ever finished outside the top 10 in any tournament that he played whilst I was carrying from as, as a, and he took great pride in that. He, wow. he, he treated tournaments overseas um, with as much respect as any tournament. Now, a lot of players, they get a, an appearance fee to go overseas and play in tournaments. And it's just like a paid holiday. Some guys did like that, but Tiger, when he was getting paid an appearance fee, he absolutely grinded it out and 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 gave it as full attention and and I that's I, I take you know I take my hat off to the guy and he, he had great respect for that he, like even though he won that tournament but every time he played overseas as a person that was getting paid to play in a golf tournament he did his utmost best and he he was proud of the fact that he had never finished outside the top ten. 
What an incredible start. Yeah, you know, selfishly, as an Australian, I can recall uh, him winning the 2009 Australian Masters at the famous Kingston Heath, and you were on the bag for that. He can, he contended in the Australian Open a number of times. It sounds like Tiger got a real kick out of not only taking his game overseas, but putting on a good show for the fans. Yeah, no, like I said, I, t- I took my hat off to him, just the way, you know, like a, a lot of guys, like I said, they'll play overseas. They'll treat it as something like of a holiday, you know, go and do some sightseeing, go and do some that. But, I mean, he'd go overseas, and, and, and it was full attention to the golf course, the detail of the golf course, and, and, and he wanted to play well for the fans. I mean, he you know, he, he never wanted to leave uh, and have the sponsors or the tournament feel that that was a waste of time. So he, he always gave it his utmost best, and I think that's a real true quality, one of those great qualities. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because Thailand obviously added extra motivation for Tiger to play well in, in his mother's homeland. And Thailand was actually a happy place for Tiger even before he turned pro. Not many people would know this, but he made his first cut in a professional tournament when he played the 1994 Johnny Walker Classic as an amateur. Uh, once he had turned pro, he won the 1997 Asian Honda Classic, which was also held in Bangkok, and then the Johnny Walker in 98 and 2000. When you were caddying for Tiger in Thailand, was it absolute chaos? That would be one word to describe it. We could be a lot of words, even, but uh, you hit it right on the head there. Absolutely <laughs> pandemonium. Yeah, I mean, you know, like a lot of these people that in these countries and that that don't get to go to a lot of special sporting events, and they see someone like Tiger, you know, Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods. These people, you know, they're global figures. They're not, you know, not only um, as a sports star, but they're, they're just global figures. So you know, people that go to a lot of the golf tournaments, you know, might not even know a lot about the game of golf and that, but they just go to see someone that they know is so so iconic. Well, thankfully that helicopter didn't crash for a number of reasons. So, <laughs> Steve, Tiger posts a handful of good results in the early part of 2001, but he doesn't get a win, and there's a bit of commentary that he's maybe in a quote-unquote slump. He then finally comes through the Arnold Palmer Invitational at Bay Hill in Orlando, Florida, and then the Players' Championship the week after. Now, the 2001 Players is famous for Tiger's massive triple-breaking putt for birdie on the 17th green, the Island Green, on the Saturday. What are your memories of that famous putt? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those putts there. You're facing a putt of that difficulty that you're just trying to work out a way how I can two-putt this. You know, you don't want to three-putt. It's just, you know, the... 17th hole and so forth you don't want a three putt so um you know after you know tiger just said whatever whatever however he read it and and he he said steve you know tommy quite often on a putt of that length he'd, he'd get me to stand you know on either side of the hole if it was a right to left breaking putt you know he'd have me stand on the right hand side of the hole what well, was so that you place your feet in somewhere in the area where you need to aim the ball give the guy somewhere to aim sort of thing and that of a putt that length and uh, that was kind of the case there, big, you know, d- triple breaking putt. But I mean, you know, it just seems, you know, Tiger has a highlight reel of those kind of, you know, the chip and the Augusta, that putt there, you know, you could stand there, you could actually be there for the rest of your life and never hold that putt. And then, you know, you hold it when it counts the most sort of thing. So <laughs> um, that was probably, you know, one of the biggest roars I think I've ever heard. So Tiger would get you to stand where he thought the putt was going to start breaking and he would aim at your feet, would he? Yeah, sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, you you know, you're so far away from the flag putting, it's hard to actually, you know, when you're trying to pick out a spot between you and the hole, but you're so far away, it's hard to actually sometimes see a spot that's definite enough. But from that kind of range, a long way away, where you, you know, you're not trying to hold the putt, you're trying to get it cl- as close as you can. You get the caddy to stand and put it place his feet. Now, if you think the putt breaks three feet left to right, where you get your caddy to stand out there three feet away on that side and just aim at his feet. Uh, it's a very good guideline. Yeah, that's a good little insight. So, Steve, what were Tiger's feelings towards not only TBC Sawgrass, but also the Players' Championship in general? Because he won the event twice, and he did say in his winning press conference that week that the Players' Championship was, and I quote, probably the fifth major. 
Did he identify the players as a massive tournament on his schedule, apart from the majors that he wanted to win? Yeah, I mean, everybody, you know, wants to win the Players' Championship because it is their tournament. It's the Players' Tournament. And, you know, it has as strong a field as any as any tournament, including all the major championships and that. And so everybody, you know, outside of the major championships, there's a handful of tournaments. Now, some players will have other tournaments. You know, some players would prefer to win their national open of their country as opposed to the Players' Championship. But, um, yeah, he liked the golf course. But I wouldn't say... It was one of his favourite golf courses. You know, he always had some courses that absolutely suited his eye. Obviously, Bay Hill Memorial and that. So the Players' Championship wasn't one course that suited his eye as good as some of the other courses. But, you know, he's won the tournament a couple of times. And, you know, it, you could say it is the fifth major. Everyone debates that. But um, there are four majors and that's it. The Players' Championship is famous for being home to the par 3 17th at TBC Sawgrass, which is renowned as one of the most dramatic and difficult holes in professional golf. During the Players' Championship each year, the eventual winner has to survive a 141-yard tee shot to an island green surrounded by water and has been known for ending the hopes of many a player trying to win the tournament considered golf's unofficial fifth major. So Steve, to go back to the par 3 17th hole at TPC Sawgrass, you have an interesting theory about that hole as it relates to the Players' Championship, don't you? Yeah, look, I've always thought, you know, it, it, it's a it's a great hole and it's a spectacular hole for galleries. And, that, and one of the things that the, I've always interested there, we, we, players always can't wait for the tee times to come off, at, come out of that tour because nobody wants to be on the back nine Friday <laughs> in the afternoon on the 17th hole. If, if you play on Friday afternoon, you want to be finishing on the ninth hole. Well, but Friday afternoon there, if you're, if you're playing on, you know, you're in the afternoon group and you're playing on the back nine there on Friday. It's um, pretty unruly. <laughs> and it's not a shot you want to hit in the water in front of all those fans that have had excessive amount of alcohol in that hole. But, um, yeah, my th- I, I like the hole, but I don't like being the 17th hole. I, I think that hole would be a better hole if it was, you know, swap it around and make it the eighth hole and uh, the, the last hole, the second last hole of the front nine because – whilst it's a very good hole, there are a lot of good shots get hit there that go in the water because the wind is very, very difficult there. It's surrounded by water and the wind is very, very tricky. And sometimes the green gets very, very firm and it's hard to stop the ball in the green. So there's been a lot of good shots that go in the water. Granted, there's some poor shots hit there, of course, but, you know, but if you hit a poor shot there and it goes in the water and you take any kind of number, you can't recover. You know, I don't think it's a fair hole to lose a tournament on by hitting, you know, arguably a good shot and you end up with, you know, you make a five or six. And like a, I always think back to Lenny Matisse. He was a guy that was having the career week of his life, playing absolute fantastic golf and ran up an incredible number there and was pretty much never heard of since because it just devastated him. Um, you know, had that hole been on the, you know, on the front nine, of course, you'd have 10 holes to recover, but you can give the tournament away right there. Steve is referring to the 1998 Players' Championship when Len Matisse, a local Ponte Vedra, Florida golfer playing in front of family and friends in the gallery, started the final day six shots behind the lead. Matisse made six birdies in his first 16 holes to sit one shot off the lead as he approached the 17th tee, but his chances of winning the players went up in flames at TPC Sawgrass's 17th hole when he put three balls in the water and eventually signed for a quintuple bogey eight on that hole. Matisse did make birdie on the 18th, but he ultimately finished four shots behind winner Justin Leonard. I like the hole. If it were me, I would not have it as a 17th hole. Yeah, it's an interesting theory that you bring up. And, and certainly, if I was going to argue against you, I would say, no, you know, the fans love the 17th at Sawgrass. It provides so much drama towards the end of the tournament, and that's what the fans want, and that's what clearly the PGA Tour wants. 
But at the same time, if you flip those nines, the, the player's championship would end on the ninth hole, which is a par five. And it's a really exciting par five because you can make birdie or you can make bogey. Um, and But I, I tend to agree with you because if you look at somewhere like Augusta National, you know, like arguably the most famous course in the world, its most famous hole is the 12th hole. And that is also very difficult, provides a lot of chaos during the Masters right as the back nine is beginning to ramp up. But if a player makes a mistake at the par three 12th hole, he still has two par fives to make up for that fact. So it almost seems a little bit unfair that the 17th at Sawgrass doesn't give a player a chance to rectify those mistakes. Yeah, you think about the 17th hole at the TPC there. If you put one in the water there and make a five or six something, now you go to the 18th hole, which is just as hard. The tee shots there is just as hard. You know, so it's a, you know, I just, I, I, I like I said, I, I like the hole, but I think it's too penal to be the 17th hole, particularly of a tournament of that, you know, that, that importance. Chasing Majors is made possible by our friends over at Bluebet. Bluebet is the true blue Aussie betting company which offers plenty of markets in professional golf. Bet on your favourite golfers on various tours around the world, including every tournament on the US PGA Tour, both pre-tournament and in-play bets like first round leaders and three ball betting. There'll also be plenty of markets for the majors starting with the upcoming Masters in April. One of my favourite bets on the Bluebet app is Tiger to win a major in 2022, and I think we'd all love to see him make another comeback. So head over to bluebet.com.au or download the Bluebet app from the iPhone or Android app stores and gamble responsibly. Okay, Steve, the first part of 2001, the commentary was that Tiger was in a slump just because he wasn't winning. But now he's won Bay Hill and he's won the players and the chat has suddenly turned to the Masters is coming up and if Tiger wins the Masters, he has a chance to win the Grand Slam, all four majors in the same year. Was that persistent and almost annoying for you and Team Tiger? Yeah, look, I mean, honestly, it's one period of my caddying career that I'll never forget. So basically after that putt was holed at the, at the, on the third playoff hole at Valhalla for the PGA Championship victory, right through to the opening tee shot of Augusta in 2001, the whole talk was whether Tiger Woods could win the Masters and hold all four major trophies at once. And would it be the Grand Slam? Would it be the Tiger Slam? What kind of slamming? And it was just, it was actually relentless um, to the point where Tiger's a massive sports fan, as most professional athletes are, loves to follow all the different other codes, obviously including the golf. But he himself, a few weeks out from Augusta, did not read any newspaper articles, did not watch any TV, just completely shut himself off because he got sick of hearing about it too. And, that, and, and you know, you, everyone's got an opinion and, you, and, everything, and you, know, you don't want to be taking all these different things in and don't want to be hearing it. So that was interesting that he did that because he, he, he's a sports junkie. But yeah, I think, you know, I think it was about three weeks out before the tournament that he just stopped listening to any radio, any TV, just, you know, when he's in the car, just have the music on. When he came home, there's no TV, um, <laughs> any sports channels on. It was just all, all you know, sort of regular TV. Well, Tiger's known for, you know, sitting down and he loves watching his sport, loves watching the golf channel to see what's happening in his own sport. Um, that must have been pretty difficult to not watch those programs for a, for a couple of months leading up to the Masters. Yeah, because it was just looked at this. It was it was un, it was unbelievable. Even the hype around you know the possibility that a player uh, it's only the second chance that any player is going to have the chance to do that. Um, and, and and likely, you know, he, he probably believed that he, he might get the chance again. But in all fairness, we all know that probably that chance was never going to come again for anybody. So um, a lot of pressure on himself. And of course, you know, the more media and more hype about it, there's more pressure if, if you are to take it all in. But like I said, he shut that out. I think that was a great move on his behalf. 
Yeah, I could just imagine how overwhelming that would be. It's the only question you get asked for nearly eight months from the PGA Championship the year before all the way up until the Masters in April 2001. Now, Steve, I asked you something similar in the last episode, but I want to ask you again because this episode is about the Masters at Augusta National. Um, I imagine because of the rules that you weren't allowed to go to Augusta with Tiger for those reconnaissance missions that that Masters contestants would do the week before the Masters or the the weeks leading up to the Masters, did that make your job difficult, not being able to fly out to Augusta and and check the course out just with Tiger uh, away from the crowds and everything? Yeah, I mean, one thing in your favour there is that you carry there every year. So, you know, every year you go there and, and, and you keep a detail. You've got your yardage book. I mean, you, you know, you've just got so many notes in your yardage book uh, that you keep from year in and year out there. Um, but it is a difficult place to carry because, you know, now obviously when the players go there prior to do their, you know, their, their scouting trips, whatever, the caddies can't go either because they have to take a local caddy. Um, and, and then, you know, the week of the tournament, you're not allowed on the course unless you're with your player. So it's the only course that you cannot actually go out and walk the course. You can't go and measure the course. You can't go and look at, you know, you, you can't, you, you just can't do it. So, um, and in the morning times, you, you've, when you go and have a look at the pins, you're not even supposed to do that. Um, so you've got to walk outside the ropes. Um, and and it's, their rule is anytime you're on site, you've got to have that uniform on. <laughs> so The white overalls. Yeah, don't ask me about the white overalls, Evan. Not my favourite clothing. So, Steve, can you give us a bit of an insight into what it's like to caddy at Augusta National? Because you've done it for a number of players, from Greg Norman to Raymond Floyd, Tiger Woods, and even Adam Scott, who you helped to win the Masters in 2013. What's it like caddying at the home of the Masters? Every, every player wants to do well at Augusta. And, that, and you know, obviously, I caddied for Greg Norman at Augusta a couple of times there and a couple of years. And, um, you know, he, he desperately wanted to win that tournament. You know, as Tiger each and every year because the golf course is probably tailor-made for Tiger and he he feels he should do well there. Um, and, and, and there is a lot of pressure. Look, there's no, we always say in the caddy world, uh, there's more firings after Augusta than any other tournament as far as the caddy. Oh, really? <laughs> Absolutely. There's more emphasis on needing to hit the right club there than any golf course in the world. So right from the first hole to the 72nd hole, it's nothing but stress when you're caddying there because you've got to hit the right club. If you're going to do well, you know, you're standing there on the 13th hole and the 15th hole, you know, probably the 15th hole is one of the greatest second shots. You, if you're in the fairway and you're going to hit it, you know, like if you come up short, you're in the water. It's a very, it's the hardest pitch in the world. Or if you hit it long, you're over the drink in the back there. And that's the hardest pitch in the world, like short pitch. Um, it's a tremendous amount of stress there when you carry there. But um, I always felt when I was caring for any player that I've actually carried there, that if I could not select the right, if I could select the right club, Every time for seventy-two holes, you know, and the and the guys putting reasonably well, you're going to be in the tournament because you just the, the penalty for choosing the wrong club there is more severe than any other course you play. Like you just get it into some situations where you can't get the ball up and down. Well, Steve, just on that note, you mentioned the fifteenth hole. Uh, what are some of the most difficult holes at Augusta National for a caddy, and what are some of the most rewarding holes as a caddy? Well, I mean. Yeah, the, the sixth hole, the, the par three, um, the club selection is just so vital, particularly when that flag's on that right-hand side of the green there, because you've got to get it right. If it's short, it comes all the way back off the green there. It's impossible up and down. You go long, it's just as hard. So it's just, you know, you've only got a shelf of 12 yards, so you've got to get that right, the club selection on that hole. Um, that's vital. The 11th hole, obviously, you've got to get it right there on, on the 11th hole. Uh, for, you know, if it comes up short of the green there, it runs across and goes in the water and you can't go long there. And then, of course, 12, the par three. 
most famous hole. I mean, 13, 15. I mean, they're all, they're just so, those holes are just, you know, you've got to get the right club. You know, some of the other holes aren't, aren't as difficult, but um, those holes for sure, you just have to get the right club. I mean, my favorite hole in the golf course is, is the fifth hole. I mean, it's probably, it's a, it's a sleeper, but it always play averages over par. And, that, and that's the most difficult green, not only in Augusta, but I think in the world. I mean, you, you know, you've got to hit the ball in one spot on the green and one spot only on that hole. It's one of the best holes uh, on the course and probably one of the most underrated holes on the course. But I think it's, um, like I said, always plays over par and it's a plays a significant part um, in the tournament there because, you, you know, a lot of players make four fives in that hole. Yeah, the fifth hole has always been one of the toughest holes at Augusta National and they've lengthened that hole, I think, more than any other hole on the course. So that's only gotten tougher over the years. But if we bring it back to the par three 12th hole, did your club selection for Tiger change over the years with advances in golf ball and golf club technology? No, they've never, they've never, that's one hole that's never been touched. I mean, and there's no need for it to be touched. But, you know, you just get such a great feel of where the wind is. The more you carry there, the more you know uh, where that wind is. So, um, you know, even though it's a very difficult hole, I, I, I always felt reasonably confident standing there that because just based on past history, I'd have it in my notebook. You know, when this flag's blowing this way and that one's blowing that way, it's it's bizarre there, as you would know. You can be standing there on, a, and you can see the flag on 11, 12, and 13, and they're all blowing different directions. Like one's blowing out of the north, one's out of the south, one's out of the west. It's impossible. But I'd have a, I had a particular page in my book that said, you know, it would document all, all the different angles of the three different flags to blow that you see. And if it's this way, this is actually what it's doing. If it's this way, this is what it's doing. So I never used to get too phased there. And, um, you know, I always felt like if the player hit, hit, hit a sort of a lower trajectory shot, that, that wouldn't get wouldn't have get too effective. But you know, some days you come there and it's just dead calm, and it's you know, I mean, it's a pretty easy shot when it's dead calm. But it's you know, that the wind around that aim and corner on a Sunday afternoon is always pretty tricky. Did Tiger always hit a nine iron on the twelfth hole? Yeah, no, it's generally you know, eight nine wedge just depends. Yeah, yeah, I think. Uh, and what the, the, the funniest thing that ever happened on that hole is we were standing on the green there one day at the 12th hole and a ball came over from, from the golf course behind it. Somehow a guy's hit <laughs> and it landed it was a top light, yellow top light landed right in the middle of the green. <laughs> like during the Masters? During the Masters, yeah, right. But of course, that's not something they show on TV because they, you know, they, they they're not supposed to be even playing on that course behind there on a Sunday when Augusta's on. But someone obviously was on the golf course out there and somehow got it over the trees and landed on the twelfth green, the yellow top light. <laughs> um, for the listeners who might not know, Steve is referring to Augusta Country Club, which actually borders the fence with Augusta National. And and I think over the years, Augusta National has actually purchased some of the land from Augusta Country Club to expand their property. And even around at Augusta Country Club during the Masters week costs about $1,500 a pop from memory. So it's a very in-demand golf course in that week. Um, that, that's, that story is hilarious, Steve. What was your reaction at the time? Oh, we all just had the greatest laugh. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I've never heard that story. That is brilliant. Chasing Majors is proud to partner with X-Blades, who have been internationally renowned for decades for producing world-class football boots and performance apparel for athletes across rugby union, rugby league, Aussie rules and netball. The team at X-Blades are passionate about grassroots and community sport and that's why they're about to bring their credentials to golf with an exciting golf apparel range launching this year. Watch this space and keep listening to Chasing Majors.
All right, Steve, I, I want to bring up a couple of funny moments from the practice rounds at that Masters, and, and I came across these in my research, and I just want to get your reaction to them. The first was on the Monday, you and Tiger were walking out of the clubhouse at Augusta, and, and you were on your way to play a practice round, and Tiger noticed a television cameraman backing off frantically to get Tiger in focus as he was walking. But as he did, Tiger sort of noticed that he was heading pretty steeply towards the famous clubhouse oak tree at Augusta National, and Tiger yells out for the cameraman to duck, duck, but it was too late because the cameraman crashed backward into a low branch and he, and he fell over. Can yeah, you remember I, that? vividly. We had this guy, our security guy, every year. His name was Tyrone. And um, Tyrone was saying the same thing. If this guy doesn't move, this guy doesn't move. He's going to, you know, he, and of course, those cameras are, you know, they're massively heavy. And, and you know, Tiger's making, you know, he comes out there. It's Monday. It's his first appearance at the, at the tournament. And he's a big frenzy sort of thing and everything. And this guy's trying to get the, you know, get a great shot of him you know, walking from the practice range area through the little bit of area of the clubhouse and on the way under the big oak tree there to the first tee and that, you know, and the poor bloke crashed into the top of one of those limbs and that, and, you know, that, that would have been painful. There's just no two ways it wasn't. Okay, the second funny moment I want to bring up was Nick Faldo, three-time Masters winner. He was asked by reporters that week, how do you tackle Tiger Woods at this Masters? And Faldo kind of answered in the literal sense, and he said, the only person who could tackle Tiger Woods is Jonah Lomu. And he was, of course, a famous legendary rugby union player for the New Zealand All Blacks, your homeland. Um, and he's since sadly passed away. But I imagine at the time, you would have found that pretty funny because he was a huge star in the world of rugby, Jonah Lomu. Yeah, uh, yeah it was. I mean, it was a great response from Nick. I mean, I don't know. Um, how he thought of that so quickly. But, yeah, I mean, if there's one guy that could tackle anybody, it was Jonah Lomu, yeah, an absolute legend here in New Zealand. He's quick on his feet, Nick Faldo. Uh, Steve, before we get into round one, Tiger had a specific scoring goal at all times during the Masters, didn't he? What was that? Well, I mean, the, the first round, he put, he put so much emphasis on the first round there because he knew that if you could get off to a subpar start, that you're right in the tournament. I mean, it doesn't matter what score's leading, but just get away to an underpass start because you don't feel like you want to be clawing your way back there. So um, he, he was always cautious on those first rounds at Augusta. And, and, and you know, obviously this particular time he got away to a decent start, 70 obviously wasn't leading the tournament. But, you know, you feel good in yourself when you start underpar at Augusta because then it sort of takes a little bit of the pressure off somewhat you're not you know you're not going out there on the second round trying to claw back your way from over par to back to under par you're, you're starting under par and you're just going to progress from there and did he try to score under par for each nine holes at the masters was that kind of tiger's mini goal yeah we always have every week we'd all have, have a mini goal but that was always the one there you felt that if you if, if you could play eight nines 72 holes there every nine under par you know, obviously you're going to be in good shape there. That was always a primary goal there. Yeah, that's a good mini goal because providing you shoot at least one under par for each nine, you're going to be seven under par heading into the back nine on Sunday, and usually that's going to give you a chance to win the Masters. Now, Steve, Tiger was paired with Mike Weir, Canadian, and a good friend of Tiger's who would actually win the Masters two years later, and also Miko Ilanen from Finland. Tiger shoots 70 on Thursday, and then he surges into contention on Friday with a red-hot 66. However, it's Chris DeMarco who actually leads after the first and second rounds. He would become a great rival of Tiger's DeMarco for the next five or six years, wouldn't he? So what are your thoughts on Chris DeMarco in general? He seems like a lovely bloke and he was also a really good player. Yeah, I mean, a, a very, very gritty competitor. I wouldn't say one of the most naturally gifted players, but a guy that works very, very hard on his game uh, and plays, you know, a guy that plays to his strength. You know, somewhat like a Jim Furyk sort of a player, you know, not not 
you know, doesn't have a tremendous amount of um, athletic ability like some of the other players do, but played strictly within his game, had great belief what he's doing, a very, very hard worker. And, and you know, he he's one of those guys, he played so well for a number of major championships without winning one. And, um, yeah, it was, he's a very gritty competitor. Yeah, DeMarco really stuck it to Tiger in the majors a number of times over the years, and it was a shame that he never got his own major victory. But on Saturday, Tiger's pair with DeMarco, and it, and it seemed like Tiger kind of broke his spirit early by gently cruising to a 68, is how I'd put it, and into the lead. Afterwards, DeMarco said, Tiger hits it so far, it's really a par 68 for him. The par fives at Augusta National are just long par fours for, for Tiger. There were a couple of holes today. He had a sand wedge in, and I had a seven iron. Was it important for Tiger, Steve, to really flex his muscle? Yeah, look, I mean, when a guy's playing well, like Tiger... Um obviously was at this particular point in time that he's, you know, when, when, when he's out hitting a lot of guys and like Chris is, you know, hitting two or three clubs more into the green and that the average is that Tiger's going to get the ball closer to the hole than he is. And obviously going to shoot a better score because he's going to get it inside the hole if he's hitting it from the fairway. But, um, you know, Tiger always felt like when you're playing with, with a guy like that you, you, and you've not been in contention with him, that was the first time DeMarco had been in contention in a major with Tiger. You like to stamp your authority on it because if you play again, you know you know what the guy is looking into, what he's going to face. So uh, he always found that pretty important to do. In its 51st year of publication, Australian Golf Digest is the oldest golf media brand in Australia, reaching over 850,000 golfers every month. Australian Golf Digest provides the best written and video news in golf, both locally and internationally. Golf fans can get full access to the magazine through the Digital Pass, which starts from just $3.33 per month and also includes instruction, golf course and golf travel content. Head over to australiangolfdigest.com.au or check them out on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Well, he certainly did flex his muscle and it was Tiger leading after 54 holes at 12 under par with Phil Mickelson at 11 under and DeMarco and Mark Kalkovacchia at 10 under par. Now, on Sunday, Tiger is paired with Mickelson in the final group, and this is made for television stuff. Tiger versus Phil, Augusta National, the final group, it's the Masters. Tiger's wearing his famous red and black. Um, so let's have a look at Mickelson's challenger, and Mickelson actually shared the lead twice early in the final round, but he missed a two-foot putt on number six, and then he drove it into the trees on number 11, and that led to a bogey. But he was actually still only one shot back with three holes to play. However, it was a bogey on, on number 16 that actually spelled the end for him. Now, Tiger and Phil barely made eye contact on Sunday throughout the whole round, Steve, and, and Mickelson didn't watch a single shot of Tiger's. Was it a bit icy that day? Look, I mean, those two had the greatest respect for each other's ability. And, you know, Tiger, he didn't want to lose to Phil, and Phil didn't want, you know, he, he just loved the opportunity to try and capture the, you know, to, to, it's, a, it's a record that he could be the one that stopped Tiger from completing whatever the slam you'd like to call it. But, um they were two, you know, obviously it's well documented, but they're not friends. And they're two guys who absolutely respect each other's abilities. I mean, you know, T Tiger just marveled at Phil's short game. Um, he, you know, he just, he, he time and time again just would say to me, you know, can you believe he just did that? How good, he, you know, he is and so forth. But, you yeah, know, there was no, um, there was no contact or there was no talk and no, no, no chat. It was, uh, it was just me and Tiger and Bones and, and uh, Phil out there, just that they were doing their thing, we were doing our thing. 
Well, I guess the way to explain why Phil did that was he was just trying absolutely everything at this stage, wasn't he? He was 30 years of age, he hadn't won a major yet, and he had that unfortunate tag of the best player in golf without a major, and he was just trying to gain some sort of advantage over Tiger, and I suppose that's how he thought he could do it that day. But Steve, there is one shot I want to talk about, and it was Tiger's second shot in the 11th hole. It was a 140-yard 8-iron, and but before we, we get into it, how far could Tiger hit his 8-iron at that stage? Probably about 170 yards? Yeah, look, I mean, yeah, a, a, a normal eight iron there would go just under one seventy, about one sixty eight was normal. Um, that that shot there um, was an absolute brilliant shot because he 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 could have hit a wedge, um, a nine, or he he just wanted to hit a shot that absolutely had no spin on it because when if you're going to go for that flag there, and, and you put some kind of spin on it and get it sort of spinning backwards and to the left, it can spin into the water. Um, that was a guy that just was in complete control of what he was doing that day. Just absolutely took a half swing with an eight iron, absolutely clipped it beautifully off the turf, no spin on it, and it just stopped right there. I mean, you know, that's a at that particular point in time, you know, that's a gutsy shot there because if you if you pull that a little bit and you hit it in the water, I mean, you know, so that was a he took advantage of a great he had a great tee shot there to drive it that far down there. Yeah, a lot of players probably wouldn't try that shot under the pressure of trying to win the Masters because it requires a lot of finesse, and that's hard to do when you've got adrenaline pumping through you. But, Steve, when, when Tiger would try a finesse shot or a three-quarter shot, you know, one that wasn't a full swing at Augusta National, what advice would you give him? Yeah, well, I mean, it was just you knew some shots you just got to take the spin off the ball because, you know, you just don't want the ball to spin. Um, and some shots you do want the ball to spin. So, um you know, it, it, when you're counting there, you, you know all the shots, so you know the flags, and you know what's required, and, and, and it's just one of those things. That, you know, you, you say, okay, this is a shot. It's a, you know, we, we don't want to spin on this shot, and that would obviously dictate the club selection. Yeah, he's a maestro at Augusta National Tiger. So, Steve, going back to Mickelson, there is a pivotal moment I want to talk about in terms of mind games, and it happened on the famous par 5 13th hole at Augusta. Mickelson hits a great drive, a, a nice high cut. It lands in the middle of the fairway, but Tiger really wanted to flex his muscle over Mickelson, and so Tiger pulls out the three wood, and, and Tiger hits a high draw, a big sweeping high draw, and flies it 20 yards past Phil. Now, I believe at the time, as they're walking off the tee, Phil says to Tiger, hey, do you normally hit your three wood that far? And Tiger responds instantly, no, sometimes I hit it further. Did he kind of crush Mickelson's hopes of winning that day then and there? I, I, look, I believe it did because from that moment on, um, he didn't have that pep in his step there. Um, but I just want to tell you a little bit about the importance of that shot because amazingly, every day, every year, every week that Tiger plays golf, I would say to him, let's see the tee shot for 13 at Augusta. So every time that he was practicing and he'd have a three wood in his hand, he would practice it. Like if you go back and have a look at that shot and see how far right he's aiming, he's aiming just inside the 12th tee and he's hitting this massive sweeping hook. Now he practiced that shot thousands and thousands and thousands of times and seldom did he actually actually hit it properly when he needed to because normally he'd hit it straight and block it, or not block it, but just not hook it and hit it behind those pine trees up there. <laughs> I mean, he hit that, but... That was one of the best golf shots he ever hit because he'd practiced that shot so many times. And I said to him, Tiger, this is when you absolutely need it now. Just trust it. You've hit it a thousand times. Just let it go. Because he tended to hang on to it. He'd aim where he needed to aim and he just wouldn't hook it, you know, because he was scared of pull hooking it. 
And it was absolutely amazing that he, you know, after thousands and thousands of repetition of trying to hit that shot, he brought it out there. And that was the best one he ever hit. And he had a great thrill in telling Phil that, yeah, no, I actually can hit it further. That's incredible. And, and I believe on the first three days on the 13th hole, Tiger actually hit driver. So he waited until the most pressure-packed moment to pull that shot out. Was that just incredible to watch? Yeah, he hit that shot and he just looked over and gave me a little wink. It was quite a satisfactory thing because, like I said, every practice session I'd say, let's see the shot you need to hit here. You know, okay, hit, hit, when you're on the range, here's the flag and you've got to take it from that flag to that flag. Massive sweeping hook with some height on it. I mean, it was, you know, and under pressure, like I said, it's, it's a shot that you could duck up very quickly and that's what he always feared. A lot of times uh, over the years of Augusta, when he did go to hit that shot, like I said, he didn't draw it. He was up in that pine straw. You saw him up there tons of times in that pine straw on the right. That's incredible. That gives me goosebumps hearing that. And and to, in Phil's defense, he's fine. He does end up winning three Masters titles, so he's okay. And to his credit that day, Phil did actually make birdie on that hole, on the 13th hole. But then he played the last five holes in even par, and it just wasn't enough to catch Tiger, wasn't it? Phil finishes third, three shots back of Tiger. Now, let, let's talk about David Duval for a quick second. He didn't do too much wrong on Sunday, and he shot 67, which is a great score on Sunday at the Masters. But the mistakes he couldn't afford to make were a three-putt for par from about 60 feet on the 13th hole, and he also missed birdie chances on three of the last five holes coming in. Duval finished second, two shots back of Tiger. It was actually Duval's fourth straight Masters where he was in contention, and it was his second runner-up at Augusta. Steve, do you think Duval was sort of unlucky never to win a Masters? He was so good, and I will point out that he wins the, the British Open, the 2001 British Open, a few months later, but do you think it's unlucky that he never won a Masters? Oh, there's no two ways about it. I mean, he, he had a stretch there. Where he played phenomenal golf. Um, and, and like, you know, he, he starts there a couple of shots back on Sunday, shoots 67. Most times that's going to be good enough. Um, you know, given that it wasn't that easy a day, uh, the final round 2001. So he certainly played good enough to win the Gusta, and it's a real shame that he didn't because, you know, he he he, he had a great record there. But, you know, there's a lot of players at a lot of tournaments like him that have just had, a, you know, been so close so many times and just hadn't quite done it. And, you know, like he, he, he had a great opportunity over those last few holes too, and he just couldn't make the putts when he absolutely needed to. And that's kind of the difference, um, you know, some that you know some of the guys make those putts and some don't tiger actually failed to birdie the par 5 15th two holes later was there any concern over that or was he too confident that he was going to go on to win he felt like he, you know this is a great opportunity to make an eagle he couldn't leave the ball in a better place uphill right to left putt a putt that he loves um and, and, he, and he pulled a little bit and the, and the speed wasn't great and you know he hit it a couple of feet further past than he wanted and then surprisingly he missed a short one there but you know, the same thing, walking away from the green to the next tee, you remind yourself, hey, you're still leading the tournament here. But, you know, like if he felt if he could have buried that one, then that was probably all over right there. But got a little over aggressive on that putt there. And like I said, didn't hit a very good second putt. But, you know, he's still leading the tournament and probably got a little bit, you know, like the difference between the Mickelson's tee shot and Tiger's tee shot on 16th were very minimal. Tiger's just caught that ridge enough to bring it down was Phil just missed it. I mean, they probably landed six inches apart. I mean, it was very, I mean, I remember going up there and seeing where they landed. I mean, there was nothing more than a couple of cup width from where they landed. One's got a very difficult two part. One's got an easy two part. So there's a, you know, there's a bit of luck there. Tiger absolutely tattoos his drive 330 yards up the 18th fairway just to rub it into Mickelson. And then he birdies 18, almost like a chef's kiss to the victory. Tiger shoots 68 for a 16 under par total and a two-shot win over David Duval for Tiger's sixth major and second Masters title. But more importantly, 
Tiger becomes the only player in history to hold all four professional majors at the same time. Tiger had won the 2000 US Open, British Open and PGA Championship and now the 2001 Masters. However, the media commentary around the achievement, even before this Masters, had questioned whether it should be called a Grand Slam or something else. The commentary was accurate. A Grand Slam is winning all four majors in the same calendar year, and so they instead coined it the Tiger Slam. But Tiger and his team viewed this as holding him to an impossible standard. Well, I'm calling it the Grand Slam even, so I'm probably not the right guy. But, hey, I mean, Tiger and I has always felt, well, not always felt, but we always joked, you know, you know he, I've got the four major trophies. That's the Grand Slam. I mean, they're all sitting here, all four of them. So that's the Grand Slam. I mean, so, um, it was, look, you know, I, I, I think it's the greatest performance of any golf professional ever that given the circumstances, it's a chance to do history and something that we know probably was never going to get repeated now. And for him to actually, after, you know, or if you go back from the PGA Championship in 2000 and, and to the Masters in 2001, and given the amount of press, the amount of talk and whether you can do it, whether you can't do it, to actually come into that tournament and actually perform at his best and do it um, was just remarkable. And of course, all that talk earlier in the year about being slightly out of form, this, that, and the other, but what you got to remember is this guy had a way of peaking for the major championships and all those tournaments he's playing at the start of the year. Yes, he's trying his hardest in that, but all he's thinking is Augusta, getting his game in shape for Augusta, you know, being able to hit the draw when I need to hit the draw, and he, you know, and, and so forth. And, um, you know, once again, he, he peaked right at the right time, despite, you know, like he didn't play poorly at the start of the year. But if you listen to what some of the reporters were saying, you know, like you said, they, they thought the guy was in a slump, you know, and all of a sudden he won, won three on the trot, Bay Hill, TPC, and then the Masters. I certainly wanted a slump now. I have a random theory that it was actually better for Tiger's image that he won the Tiger Slam and not the Calendar Grand Slam because it made it contentious and it made it more of a talking point and therefore gave his achievement a little bit more airtime. What, what do you think of that? Yeah, look, I mean, look, it, 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 however you look at it, Evan, it, it's just a remarkable achievement to, to, you know, not only win the four, but the scores that he shot in all four of them. You know, I mean, the, the cumulative total under par was just absolutely phenomenal. Um, that he 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 peaked uh, at four consecutive major championships. So whether you want to call it the Grand Slam or the Tiger Slam, like you said, I, I've got four major trophies sitting on my living room table, and that, that's that's my slam. <laughs> In its 51st year of publication, Australian Golf Digest is the oldest golf media brand in Australia, reaching over 850,000 golfers every month. Australian Golf Digest provides the best written and video news in golf, both locally and internationally. Golf fans can get full access to the magazine through the Digital Pass, which starts from just $3.33 per month and also includes instruction, golf course and golf travel content. Head over to australiangolfdigest.com.au or check them out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The 2001 Masters was actually the first major with a seven-figure winner's prize, and Tiger won $1,008,000. But what about you, Steve? Would you ever treat yourself after Tiger won a major? Yeah, generally, like after the Masters, he 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 wouldn't, you know, he didn't play. Generally, didn't play for a couple of weeks after Augusta, and I'd go back to New Zealand. Um, you know, and certainly like to have a bit of a celebration with my family and that. But I mean, you know, you just working for Tiger was relentless pressure. And, and, and you know, like I said to you, it's only since I've not, you know, retired from caddying that you can look back and, you know, even sort of to this day, I like to celebrate some of the moments. But whilst it was happening, it was sort of relentless pressure of, of trying to get to the 18 and beyond to, to beat Jack's record. And that's what it was all about. So that, 
you know, in my case, there just wasn't a lot of celebrating. And, and Tiger wasn't one that would celebrate like a lot of other players did too. I mean, amazingly, I, I can tell you one thing that was would startle a lot of fans. That one year he won Bay Hill and he, and he held that, there's like a 45, 50 footer across the green on 18 um, to win the tournament. Uh, and after the celebration, you know, the trophy presentation and the press and that, we went home to Isleworth and hit that shot about 100 times on the range. He was so disgusted at how far away he hit that shot. And it, Really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this guy was just amazing. You know, like, you know, most guys were winning a golf tournament and they're celebrating. We went straight to the range. We were on the range for like an hour and a half hitting that shot the shot that he was trying to hit, you know, it started at the middle of green, faded to that right-hand flag instead of pulling it. And, and you know, that, that's what made him an unbelievable champion. You know, he, 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 he the money was of no, he, 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 of no consequence to him that what, what the prize money was. It was the trophies and the records that he was after. So, you know, that, that's kind of, you know, that's amazing, that kind of stuff. So let me read you some stats from the Tiger Slam because they are insane. Tiger shot 13 straight rounds under par, starting from the final round of the 2000 US Open at Pebble Beach, right through to the final round of the 2001 Masters. And it remains the record for most consecutive under par rounds in major championship history. Can you believe that he he pulled something like that off? Because that is incredible consistency. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that is very difficult to do because major championships are played under the most pressure uh, you know, and in the toughest conditions sometimes. And to be able to do that, it was just an absolute shame that the Saturday round at Pebble Beach was even par, and that we could have snuck one under there, and it would have been sixteen consecutive rounds. But you know, I don't think that's you know that's it. Look, Tiger holds a lot of records, and that's another one that probably won't be broken because you know the U.S. Open, Augusta, uh, the Open Championship. When you get some of the hard conditions, I mean, you know, you, you just can't shoot on the par. But I mean, you know, he, he had so many attributes that made him so special. And one of them, like you said, like I said, yeah, he's a great wet weather player. He's a great foul weather player. So he's always up for the challenge. Tiger led or co-led the field in both greens in regulation and driving distance in all 16 rounds of the Tiger Slam. Do you think that's the greatest anyone's ever swung the golf club at the majors? Well, I mean, I think the scores indicate that, you know, 65 under over those four major championships um, was remarkable. And I think the the final stroke or the second final stroke, the final tee shot at 18 at Augusta, um, I, I just stood there with absolute, even when you're catting for a bloke and, and you know, you, you're into it, I just stood there for a second after he hit that. And I said, that that is just unbelievable how far he's hit that. I mean, okay, in today's, with today's technology, Yes, players hit it up there, but no one's ever hit a tee shot, you know, obviously with a tail, a huge tailwind possibly, but that was very benign conditions. I mean, that shot was unbelievable. If you think that was 330 yards carry uphill, um, what would that equal with today's equipment, today's golf ball? I mean, that was just, I, I, I was standing there thinking, I mean, how does some human hit it this far? You know, it was, it was just, <laughs> you know, he absolutely was just in such sync with what was going on. That was just like, that was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Well, 330 yards up the hill on 18, that would still be impressive by today's standards. But what about that tee shot as a caddy, Steve? How difficult is it to advise your player whether whether he hits a three-wood short of the bunker or gets out the driver and tries to hit a nice fade to sort of land on the right-hand side of the fairway? How difficult is that to read that shot and how difficult is it for the player himself to pull it off? Yeah, look, I mean, you know, there's always lots of theories on how you play that hole. Some, you know, some people like to keep it short of those two bunkers and take those bunkers out of play. Some people like to aim at them and fade them. 
Um, you know, everyone's got to do it. And some players are fortunate enough that they can carry the ball far, far enough that they believe they can carry that second one. But it's tremendously uphill, that one. You've just, you know, you've got to stand there and be able to cut the ball. Uh, you've got to aim at that first left bunker and just move it off. It's a hell of a tough tee shot. And, and generally speaking, you know, if you just move it a little off that first one, it's not going to reach the second one. Generally, the fairways, you know, it's got such a slope to it. There's not a lot of run on that fairway because you're pitching straight into the hill. But it's definitely one of the, you know, if you've got to make a four there to win the tournament, it's definitely a tee shot. You're going to have to earn it because it's a very, very difficult tee shot. We'll come back to the Tiger Slam stats just in a second. But Steve, as a caddy, what shot and what hole made you the most nervous at Augusta National? Uh, always the second shot into 15 because you know, like I said, if, if it comes up short and you hit it in the water, that, that is a very, very difficult pitch from that drop zone uh, to, to, the, to any pin on that green there. Then, of course, if you go long and it, if it just lands over the back of the green on that little downslope there, it can hit there and scoot into that backwater. Then now you've got the most impossible chip because if that's too hard, it goes in the water at the front. So, uh, you know, you, you always your heart was in your mouth there for on the second shot there. But like on Sunday there, when Tiger hit that shot, I mean, I just it was just like that was just pure. I knew that was absolutely just under the hole, and that was pretty exciting. Yeah, you could breathe a sigh of relief after that. So, Steve, we'll go back to the Tiger Slam stats. And during the Tiger Slam, Tiger made just 23 bogeys in 16 rounds. The next best of all the players who also played all 16 rounds of those majors was Justin Leonard, and he had 41 bogeys. Tiger also made 91 birdies at an average of 5.7 per round. And the next best was Bob May, who Tiger went toe-to-toe with in the last day of the 2000 PGA. And he made 69 birdies during the Tiger Slam. How was Tiger able to sustain such consistency with birdies, but also avoid bogeys? Well, he was putting outstanding. I mean, you know, he's obviously no question he was playing well, but he putted tremendously um, through those major championships. I mean, he holds, you know, on Sunday at Augusta, trying to win the Tiger Slam, Grand Slam. And if you look at some of the putts he made, I mean, that putt to make on 10, for par on 10, I mean, that's an unbelievably hard putt to make. I mean, he's poured it right in the middle. He made so many putts to just keep the momentum going on Sunday at Augusta. It was amazing. Now, Steve, Tiger must have been in a real quote-unquote slump after that because he only wins three more tournaments in 2001, two on the PGA Tour and one in Germany at the TPC of Europe. How come Tiger kind of tapered off after that? Was he kind of just resting after achieving such a monumental feat in the history of sport? Well, you know, I don't know that he rested, but I think a lot of times when you put so much into something and it actually comes to fruition, I mean, he 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 would have never believed he could win four majors in a row. Yes, he thought he could do it, but to actually have it happen um, and... The pressure that he was under for that period of time between the PGA and Augusta, because he knew that you know he would never get another chance at that, and it was going to be once in a lifetime thing. And he 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 didn't sort of take his foot off the gas or anything, but I think he, he just like you know he had to take a little time to regroup and reset and make some you know additional goals. I mean, it was just an, you know it was just an incredible sort of thing, and. You know, amazingly, um, when Tiger would get to the absolute peak of his game, it wasn't uncommon for him to sort of start tweaking with a swing again. He liked to, you know, he, he built this thing to the absolute perfection and he liked to sort of strip it down and start again. All right, Steve, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Which one of the four majors during the Tiger Slam was your favourite? And also, do you have a favourite moment during the Tiger Slam? <laughs> well, I think the, 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 the 2001 Masters, to actually accomplish the four in a row uh, and do that and... That was my favourite one. And the T-shirt on 13 on Sunday. 
All right, Steve, well, I'm actually devastated that the Tiger Slam is over in terms of our podcast, but I'm pumped to see you in the next episode, episode six, because the silver lining is we're back at Augusta National again for the 2002 Masters. So, Steve, see you next time. Thanks, Evan. Chasing Majors is proudly brought to you by Bluebet, a true blue Aussie betting company.